Welcome to Across Acoustics, the official podcast of the Acoustical Society of America's Publications Office. On this podcast, we will highlight research from our four publications, the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America, also known as JAZA, JAZA Express Letters, Proceedings of Meetings on Acoustics, also known as POMA, and Acoustics Today. I'm your host, Kat Setzer, Editorial Associate for the ASA. Joining me today is Christopher Spankovich of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We'll be discussing his article, Psychoacoustics of Tinnitus Lost in Translation, which appeared in the spring 2021 issue of Acoustics Today. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today, Chris. How are you? Good. Happy to be here. First, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Chris Bankovich. I am the Vice Chair of Research for the Department of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi. And I am also a clinical audiologist that sees patients every week um, specifically devoted to um, uh, patients with complaints of tinnitus and sound sensitivity. Awesome. Very cool. So what is tinnitus? That's a good question. Um, so um, uh, a better question would be, what is not tinnitus? So um, <laughs> tinnitus is the perception of ringing, buzzing, humming that does not have an external source. Now, that being said, probably a good number of individuals in the audience have experienced a brief perception of ringing or buzzing or humming that lasts a few seconds and goes away. And that might happen randomly a few times a year. That is not truly tinnitus. Um, Rather, we refer to that as a transient ear noise, um, or sometimes the phrase spontaneous tinnitus is used. However, for it to be considered tinnitus, um, a, a clinical type of tinnitus, we get more of a definition of experiencing ringing, buzzing, humming at least five minutes one time in the past year. So it has to have that five minute of duration to be considered Mm -hmm. a true tinnitus. Now, that being said as well, the vast majority of patients that come to see us um, are experiencing tinnitus more often than one time for five minutes in the past year. The vast majority of individuals with tinnitus that um, have bothersome tinnitus or that pursue some type of intervention are going to be individuals with more chronic forms of tinnitus that have a um, more consistent pattern where they experience it at least monthly, daily, weekly, or even constantly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that seems pretty intrusive. Um, What causes tinnitus? So uh, the most common cause of tinnitus is going to be reduced input into the auditory pathway. So um, though um, our ears are our mechanism of getting sound um, to uh, be able to hear, Really, we hear with our, our brain. And so mm-hmm. our ears sort of serve as transformers taking an acoustic form of energy and converting it to the language the brain speaks, which is um, electrochemical. So mm-hmm. when there is a disruption in that input, that now the brain is not getting its normal type of ambient sound and the sound that it used to get, the brain changes. Um, it tries to compensate for that lack of peripheral input. And that is what, in turn, creates the changes that underlie the perception of tinnitus. Now, a person can experience transient tinnitus if we place them in um, a sound-treated room, or with this audience, uh, an anechoic sound chamber, 
if you put an individual in that room and leave them in there for five minutes, the vast majority of individuals, um, even if they never had tinnitus before or have completely normal hearing, will experience likely a tinnitus-like um, perception in that environment. Now, that doesn't mean we cause permanent damage to their auditory pathway and, and create a chronic central changes that are going to create a sustained perception of tinnitus, but they will experience tinnitus in that very quiet environment because we disrupted normal input to the brain. We put them into an artificial mm -hmm. environment and their brain is trying to hear over that silent environment, okay, that quiet environment. Once they've come out of that sound-treated booth room or come out of that anechoic sound chamber, they're no longer experiencing tinnitus. And that's different than someone that has some type of chronic change to the status of their hearing system. So a person that has noise-induced hearing loss or has age-related hearing loss, has some type of damage to the peripheral auditory pathway, that's now going to result in chronic sustained central changes that are going to underlie um, this more chronic version of tinnitus. Okay, I see. Um so in your article, you mentioned that there's a critical difference between the perception of tinnitus versus the reaction to it. Can you explain? Yes. So um, here, when we're using the term perception, really we're referring to the awareness. Um, that there is tinnitus there now, and it was not there previously. And at some level, the interpretation of that tinnitus. Um, when an individual develops ringing buzzing in their ears, their first reaction is unlikely, oh, this is good. This means that I'm, I'm going to live longer. Or did I just develop super hearing? No. You hear ringing, buzzing in your ears. Your first reaction is, well, I didn't have this previously. This is not my, my normal. This is a sign that something is off or something is wrong. And that makes sense. So that, that's our uh, really the, the perception of our tinnitus. Ultimately, how the brain categorizes that tinnitus as being something negative then can lead to the reaction to the tinnitus, which is um, the tinnitus becomes something that the brain begins to attend to because it, it can't really figure out where it's coming from because it doesn't have an external source. This begins to increase some um, stress within the individual, which increases the attention, which increases the loudness of the tinnitus, which increases the bothersome nature of the tinnitus that can lead to behavioral changes um, that are negative in, in, in how they manifest, um, further sort of creating this vicious cycle that the tinnitus is something bad and not good and, and that it um, is having significant impact on that person's quality of life. Okay, so you're like concerned with the psychological impact from the tinnitus, essentially. Correct. So um, that, that's also part of the perception as well, though. You know, you're perceiving something, but ultimately the reaction is the more significant issue. If a person just has tinnitus, but they aren't bothered by it, then then it's not as big of a deal versus someone that has it and they are extremely bothered by it. Right. Right. That makes sense. So that leads into our next question: Is there a cure for tinnitus? So, for most forms of tinnitus, no. Um, you know, when we're talking about tinnitus, there's more than one type of tinnitus. Um, the most common type of tinnitus individual experience we call primary tinnitus, um, and that's usually experienced as the ringing, bu buzzing, humming, the e type of sound. 
Mm. Um, And that is usually due to, again, some type of damage at the level of the peripheral auditory pathway. Noise-induced hearing loss, uh, drug-induced hearing loss, something to that effect. There's other forms of tinnitus as well. Um, For example, secondary tinnitus where a person hears a heartbeat in their ear. And that might be related Mm. to hypertension or something. And so if you get their hypertension under control, you can um, resolve the pulsatile tinnitus perception that person has. Some forms of primary tinnitus, for example, if tinnitus is due to the person's ears being occluded with wax, and that earwax has created enough of a change in their hearing sensitivity, like putting their their ears in a a sound-treated room briefly, well, Mm -hmm. now they're experiencing tinnitus while their ears are occluded with that wax. But once the wax is removed, they no longer perceive the tinnitus because their system's flooded again with the natural ambient sound that it expects. Um, however, those aren't the more common forms of tinnitus, right? We're talking more about chronic bothersome tinnitus. And when we're talking about chronic forms of tinnitus, um, unfortunately, no, there is no cure for that. There's no surgery. There's no um, a, a drug that we've been able to identify that can consistently turn off the perception of tinnitus in any type of sustained way. Um, that being said, there are management tools to help an individual with tinnitus, and that often involves some level of counseling on what tinnitus is, what it's not, um, and applications of, of sound to help modulate the perception of the tinnitus. Ultimately, the two things that commonly help an individual manage their tinnitus is um, learning ways to reduce their attention to the tinnitus and using sound to help reduce that perception as well to ultimately lead to habituation, where the brain may notice this once in a while, but is otherwise able to put it to the background. Okay, so it's not really a cure, but you're helping people learn to cope and thus have a solution for the problem. Correct. Um, So currently there isn't a widely accepted method of identifying or quantifying primary tinnitus. Um, Does there need to be one? What are the options for measuring tinnitus? So that's dependent on what you are attempting to quantify. Um, Going back to what we were just mentioning about perception versus reaction. Um, We can indeed uh, quantify uh, the reactions to tinnitus. There are there are numerous validated scales such as the tinnitus functional index, tinnitus handicap inventory, that can help uh, clinicians quantify how tinnitus is impacting a person's function and their quality of life. Um, we can also quantify qualities of the tinnitus perception, such as performing pitch match um, and loudness match. Of course, this is dependent on the subjective feedback of the patient. What we do not have, though, is the ability through some type of imaging or electrophysiological measure to provide an objective measure of tinnitus. Um, Now, that being said, we do have objective measures of cochlear and auditory neural functions, such as overuse conditions, um, auditory potentials, that can objectively show evidence of auditory pathology that underlies the eventual tinnitus perception and that we can correspond to the person's tinnitus perception. But currently, we do not have the capability of objectively going in and showing, oh, here is the tinnitus, this is where it's happening at in the brain, some of the brain, and, and this is the source of that signal. Ah, okay, I see. Um, so in your article, you mentioned that animals can experience tinnitus. 
How do researchers measure tinnitus in animals? Um, so uh, my colleague and, and one of the co-authors on the article, uh, Edward Logaranis, um, would say that you have to learn to speak rat. Uh, just kidding. Um, but in, in reality, we use uh, very common um, uh, approaches in animal behavioral studies, um, operant conditioning strategies, reflex-based reflex strategies to try to determine the likely presence of tinnitus or not. Um, if you have tinnitus, um, if you have a perception of ringing and buzzing in your ears, then your noise floor has changed. Your experience of quiet has changed. Now, there's, there's no such thing as the absence of sound in, in the real world, or even in an anechoic sound chamber, because a person's in there making sound. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no such thing as silence, truly. Um, but when you have tinnitus, now what you perceived as quiet has now changed because you have this new perception of this constant ringing, roaring type of sound in your ears. Um, and so what we can do is use animal models to determine if they are, if they're, what their perception of quiet has changed to now involve a sound. So you can train an animal, for example, to drink or not to drink when they hear a sound. Um, and you can uh, then give the animal tinnitus. And once the animal has tinnitus and they're placed in the test, testing environment, they stop licking because now they have this constant perception of sound in mm. that environment. Um, or we can use more of a reflex-based strategy. A common one has been um, using a startle reflex. Um, so this uh, is a gap pre-pulse inhibition to a startle. It could be a, a startle that's created by an acoustic signal or startle created by an uh, air puff to the, the back of the animal's neck. And so, for example, if someone snuck up behind you and yelled, that would cause you to startle, right? Right. But if I told you right before that person came up behind you, hey, that guy's getting ready to come up behind you and, and yell, you would start a little bit, but it'd be less, okay, because I just told you about it. So we can use that to our advantage in animal models where we can have a startle signal, and we play the startle signal, say it's a loud sound, and we measure how much the animal startles, okay, and that could be um, using some type of piezoelectric transducer in terms of how much the animal presses on. And then we could put a little gap right before, a little gap, silent gap in the background noise right before that startle sound um, comes. And if the, person de- if the animal detects the gap, then that can now attenuate the amount of startle response, just like you would experience if I told you someone was coming behind the door to, to you know, scream. Um, if the animal has tinnitus, the idea is that they can't detect that gap as well because that silent gap is being filled by the tinnitus, and so their startle is not suppressed. Okay, I see. So I guess the follow-up question then is, how do findings related to animal tinnitus translate to human tinnitus? Well, you know, we have gained a great deal of insight um, on environmental and genetic implications for auditory pathology from animal models. Uh, Animal models have been very critical to our understanding of of uh, the auditory vestibular system. Um, and indeed, we can induce tinnitus in animal models and show reliable evidence that an animal is perceiving a sound. However, there are inherent limitations. Um, one is sort of sort of the mixed bag of, you know, uh, is that um, what we're using to induce tinnitus, is that also creating hearing loss? 
Is that also creating sound sensitivity mm. or hyperacusis? How do you differentiate those things in that model? Um, is it the hearing loss creating temporal issues that is more effect, affecting the gap detection rather than the tinnitus filling that silent gap? Um, okay. And there are inherent limitations specifically for the most problematic element for humans, which is the affective reaction, the emotional component and the effective mm-hmm. reaction that the individual has to the tinnitus. Um, that is the element that is we, we are not able to succinctly um, or consistently or reliably demonstrate through some type of anatomy. Right, that makes sense. Um, so you discussed this paradigm that suggests the, the presence of tinnitus disrupts the ability of the animal to de- detect the silent gap, and as a result, the startle response is less suppressed. Um, how does this translate to humans? So um, the translation to humans is uh, less consistent. Um, you know, in the animal model, really we're using a, a reflexive behavior, like a startle response. Um, some of the studies that have looked at this in humans have initially tried to look at perceptual um, effects. So can a human percep- perceive um, a silent gap before a noise, even if that silent gap or the noisy background is pitch matched to their tinnitus perception where it would make it more difficult? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes, they can still detect the silent gap. Um, because we have a brain and, and, and we're pretty good at, at um, you know, yeah. separating sound sources and, and doing all those things. Um, now, that being said, um, that's not really what's happening in the animal model. The animal model is looking, is looking at a reflexive behavior. So there is other work looking at reflex behaviors like uh, an eye blink or something like that onto um, a startle signal um, uh, or um, some other type of re- reflexive behavior and trying to see if that influences the model at all. And there's some evidence to support that it does, but again, it's not exactly clean. So the translation between sort of some of these animal-based models to the human condition um, some of that is lost in translation, uh, and more than likely what there's going to need to be is um, a combination of different approaches, perhaps some type of psychophysical component along with an imaging and electrophysiological component combined to sort of better isolate uh, and, and show objective evidence of tinnitus. Uh, I see. So a multifaceted approach is obviously more helpful than <laughs> just using our animal models. Um so what challenges do psychoacousticians continue to face with regards to the study of tinnitus? So, one, how can we merge objective measures of auditory function, um, such as auditory book potentials or, or some type of imaging, along with psychophysical approaches to try to enhance our ability to differentiate true tinnitus from someone that was, for example, trying to malinger or fake having a tinnitus perception? How can we objectively demonstrate that they truly are experienced tinnitus beyond them reporting that? Um, and so, again, I think that's going to have to be a merger of a combination of these different approaches, not just psychophysical, but also imaging as well as um, some type of uh, electrophysiological response coming together to um, be able to really isolate and, and demonstrate that. Um, two, how can we more realistically represent the human condition 
in animal models. Again, a major component of the human condition is not necessarily the perception of tinnitus, because we can take you know, anyone and put them in a sound-treated room or anechoic sound chair, and most of them will experience tinnitus. That doesn't mean that they have bothersome chronic tinnitus. And, and really, the vast majority of people out there that have chronic tinnitus, even that, that have constant tinnitus from whether age-related changes or noise exposure, aren't very bothered by it. Um, uh, so for, for those individuals, you know, um, it is not this huge significant issue, but for a segment of the population, yes, it is something that really, really is impacting their quality of life in a significant way. And, and that has to do with the effective reaction to the tinnitus and not the tinnitus itself. And that effective component is mm-hmm. not something we capture as well in animal models and an area that needs to be enhanced as well so that we can better target that for um, some type of management approaches. Gotcha. Um, So um, finally, for individuals with tinnitus who are listening to this podcast, do you have any um, parting comments? Yes. Um, First of all, there is hope. Um, You do not have to just learn to live with your tinnitus. There are ways to help with tinnitus. Um, There are management approaches that are very effective and very helpful. Now, Will they necessarily cure your tinnitus and take the signal out of your brain? No. But will they help to get you a place where it is less noticeable and less impactful on your quality of life? Yes. So um, my recommendation is to um, you know, reach out um, to uh, find an audiologist in your area. Commonly, audiologists are individuals that provide evaluation and management services of individuals with tinnitus because hearing loss is, again, the most common cause of tinnitus, um, reach out and find an audiologist in your area that provides um, tinnitus evaluation and management services um, and, and talk with them. And I think you'll find that um, there are things to help and that you don't just have to sit there and just constantly deal with this on your own. That's a comforting message to end our discussion on. <laughs> um, well, thank you for giving us insight into this common hearing disorder. Um, it's been great talking to you and I hope our listeners appreciate it. No problem. Um, Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into Across Acoustics. If you would like to hear more interviews from our authors about their research, please subscribe and find us on your preferred podcast platform.